This is They Create Worlds, episode 103, Elite Systems. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. This time we get to go over to the wonderful land of England, Europe, Scandinavia, all those countries in the European continent in order to investigate the elite systems. Mostly uh, we're talking uh, England or Britain here. We're, we're not getting the, the Scandinavians involved. We're not? Aw. No. Just the British people, and specifically the British people behind the company Elite Systems, which uh, had its heyday in the 80s and early 90s and still exists today, and has had some controversy, as they would say, across the pond uh, a few years ago, which we'll touch on somewhat briefly. But we're not here for that. We're here to talk about the days when they were one of the elite publishers in the British microcomputer scene. Now, honestly, there's really not a whole lot to the story of Elite. It's a pretty simple story. But the reason we're singling out and we're doing them is they do serve as a good case study for what was going on in the larger British industry, because they were always kind of on the cutting edge of where the industry was moving, which is what kept them successful for a while until the whole kind of European scene became considerably weaker once you had a complete globalization and common platforms uh, across the entire world, which led to a lot of culling in the uh, British industry. All right. So if there are going to be a case study for the PC market there, didn't we sort of cover that when we covered England and the ZX Spectrum and the whole computer industry that developed there? Well, we talked about the hardware, but we didn't go in depth on all aspects of what was going on in the British industry. So there'll be new material in that. All right. So to start off, do we go with the BBC computer? Does that Spectrum, something else? Or is this sort of predate all that? No, no, it's after it's after those platforms came into being. But it's not so much about the platforms, which is what we talked about before. It's about the market forces and the way software companies were adapting to those market forces that we're going to look at. The very first period of British computer game development was very much a bedroom coder phase. We have, of course, talked about this before, but there weren't particularly large publishers around. There were just people that were getting computers and getting involved with programming computers and then figuring out how am I going to get my software out in the world. Many of these people were teenagers in the United Kingdom because there was, as we discussed with the BBC Micro, a real push in early 80s Britain to do computer education in the schools. And because the British government was placing such an emphasis on computer education, that made British parents, even in working class communities and whatnot, think that this was something so important for their child that if they wanted one of those ZX Spectrums or something to piddle around with on the family television, because you often did just plug them into the family television, then sure, we'll get little Johnny one of those uh, ZX Spectrums or if we are a bit more posh, one of those BBC micro things, in order to give them the opportunity to explore 
this vital new subject area that is going to be crucial to everybody. I know now, 30 years on, we all have to program to survive, don't we, Jeff? Every single person in the world. Of course we do. I have to program the podcast to go out every time that we launch one of these things. Except it's not really programming in a traditional sense. (laughs) So obviously they missed the boat on that. But it did mean that there was this vibrant bedroom coder community. And the start of Elite is a little after the heyday of that period, but it's kind of a similar kind of idea as to what happened. So Elite Systems was very much a family company. And the main movers and shakers in this company were Steve Wilcox, who is still in charge of the company today, his younger brother, Richard, and their father, Brian. Brian Wilcox was a small business owner. And in 1979, he actually brought home a microcomputer Steve Wilcox didn't remember which one, so I couldn't say which one, in order to help out with the family business. Richard Wilcox, the younger Wilcox brother, started programming on it and fooling around with it. He was definitely one of these very stereotypical bedroom coders and became very interested in that kind of thing. A year or two later, they got an Atari 400 computer from the Atari 8-bit line, and so Richard kind of switched his programming over to that. Meanwhile, Steve Wilcox, who's the more entrepreneurial of the two brothers, establishes a computer shop in Walsall, which is in the the Midlands, in the West Midlands of England, somewhat near to Birmingham. So this is kind of all kind of in the very historically industrial working class area of Great Britain. Which is kind of interesting. That's where a lot of that British software industry developed. I don't know enough about British history generally to know why that might be, but a lot of the British industry grew up in Manchester and Birmingham and Liverpool and this kind of stretch of former heavy industrialized area. And I don't know if that's because these being more economically depressed areas during this time period, because it's kind of post-industrial in Britain meant that there was a greater need to find something else to do. Maybe a lot of the bedroom coders that are from these areas, their parents realize that their traditional jobs in industry are going away, and so they're extra acute or extra sensitive to the need to embrace the future. That's just pure speculation. I don't know enough about any of that. Certainly, if any of our British listeners want to chime in on any of those points on social media with us, they're they're very welcome to. But For whatever reason, it was not unusual for a lot of this activity to grow up in the Midlands and in the former industrial centers of the country. Steve Wilcox decides to set up a little computer game store in Walsall, because by this time, we're talking the early 80s here, this is about the time that the Spectrum has already arrived, and you're starting to see a nascent computer game scene. And it's starting to become... Not huge yet, but it's starting to become established with this whole bedroom coder kind of mentality and these very small software companies that didn't have really great distribution, just calling up all the shops and saying, hey, I've got a game. Do you want my game? Yay, game. Britain, being a fairly small country, that's more doable than it would be in, say, the United States. (laughs) The U.S. industry did go through a brief period where it was very localized like that, but that was never going to last for long because the U.S. is too big for that. (laughs) Way too big. 
So Steve's got this shop, which he called Bowie's, solely because he liked David Bowie a lot. Had nothing to do with computers, computer games, anything like that. But he had this thing, and it's like, okay, I've got a shop, I'm dealing with software people, etc., etc. And at the same time, his brother Richard is continuing to experiment with games, and he writes a little helicopter shooter kind of game on his Atari computer. Somewhere around here, Brian Wilcox, their father, kind of notices what's going on with Steve's retail shop, which is being fairly successful. And so he's like, okay, you're selling a lot of stuff for some of these computers, and your brother, he's making software, and it's great that he's making computer games, but nobody has Atari systems. I mean, in Britain, really, nobody had Atari systems. These were very expensive imports, luxury items. So we need to start producing some games for, like, this Spectrum thing, and, you know, your brother can do some of that. So Brian kind of pushed him to get into this software production kind of thing. And, you know, that was, again, that was a very common path in both the United States and in the United Kingdom in the very early days, as some of the companies really grew out of the early computer shops and computer game shops, because you had this hardware coming in and these books and all of these other computer paraphernalia. And then it's like, okay, we have computers. Well, what are we going to do with computers? Well, games are fun. Well, nobody's made any games. Well, then I'll just make some games or I'll pay some mates or some kids around the corner to some make, make some games that I can sell in my shop. And then we have something. So the game operation grew out of this uh, Bowie's computer store. Richard Wilcox created, like I said, this kind of helicopter shooter. Most of the games in Britain in the very early days were just variations on or ports of what was going on in the arcade because coin-operated games were huge in Britain during this period just as they were in the United States particularly Britain in England there's the kind of tradition of going on holiday to the coast because it's an island there's a lot of coast so you have beaches and you have holiday places and those holiday places would always have a bunch of coin-operated games so that would be part of the excitement of going on holiday to the beach if you were a kid during this time period, you'd get to play the games. They had games in other places as well, but the real penetration was kind of in these seaside resorts. Obviously, that's something we have in America as well. But again, America's a huge country, so everybody doesn't go on vacation to the coast. But Britain's a very tiny country with lots of waterfront, so just about everybody goes on vacation to the coast. He makes this helicopter simulator. They name it Blue Thunder after a popular series at the time, popular TV series at the time, helicopter combat action-y shows were very briefly very popular for some reason. That was kind of a thing in the 80s. Don't ask me why. Helicopters were certainly big in the public zeitgeist because there were a lot of shows out there that seemed to feature them, at least in one way or another. Yeah, and certainly I'm sure the Vietnam War would have had something to do with that because uh, there was a lot of news footage, of course, of of helicopters because air cavalry played a very big part in that war. In the 80s, you kind of had the uh, kind of military spirit revival in the United States during the Reagan years. Get that all blending together, and helicopter action shows were kind of a big thing for a period there. And so Blue Thunder is named after one of these, even though they don't have the license. They have this game Blue Thunder, and they port it over to the Spectrum, more popular than the Atari system. And so they decide to market that, and they decide to market it in 1983 under the label Richard Wilcox Software. They were kind of building a brand around Younger Brother, around Richard. 
in order to sell this thing. And the game did fine. They got it into W.H. Smith's. Uh, one thing that set Britain apart from the United States in this period is that the big high street shops, as they call them in Britain, in the United States, we talk about main streets. In the United Kingdom, they talk about high streets. And the high street shops are kind of the big retail conglomerates that are found in the downtown in the main commercial area of, of every British town. So they call them the high street shops. One thing that was really different in the United Kingdom versus the United States is that the high street shops became very interested in computer games very early on. Of course, you didn't have the console market in Britain that you had in the United States. They had the consoles there, but again, they were big, expensive imports, so the market wasn't very big. So in the United States, of course, the mass market retailers got really involved in that Atari product and that Mattel product and that Magnavox product, whereas in Britain, they really got involved in that computer software product. So they got into W.H. Smith's, which was one of these companies that got into computer games in Britain very early on. And so the game did pretty well. Problem was that Richard is a teenager. Richard, by this time, is 15. And, you know, the game doesn't do so well that they're just going to do what some bedroom coders have done and just up and drop out of everything and become a computer game programmer. Richard has other responsibilities. He can't really be the focus point of a whole company. So this Richard Wilcox software thing doesn't last very long at all just because Richard is kind of unavailable. He's got school. He's got other obligations, prepping for university, so on and so forth. Right. So in 1984, they kind of reestablished the company as elite. There's nothing really fancy or anything behind that name. I mean, obviously, being elite is always something that has kind of a positive connotation to it. Now, is this just elite or is this elite systems? It's elite systems. Okay. But elite for short. So in 1984, kind of growing out of this initial success, Steve Wilcox goes around, finds a couple of programmers, again, teenage programmers. It's this whole bedroom coder era. It's kind of the end of the bedroom coder era. But this is what you do when you're establishing a computer game company in the United Kingdom in this time period, is you're like, okay, I'm going to sell games. Great. Now I need games. Where am I going to get games? Teenagers. And why are teenagers a great source of these games? Because mom and dad have bought them all computers because computers are the future of Britain, and nobody wants to be left out of the future of Britain. Nobody. Nobody. So he finds a couple of programmers that aren't his brother and sets them to work making a game, and they make a game with the rather silly name of Kokotani Wilf. Kokotani Wilf. Did they just mash the keyboard or something? I guess. I honestly don't know what's up with that name. If I knew, I would tell you, but <laughs> it's a name. It is a name. <laughs> it, it strikes me as someone smashed a keyboard. <laughs> yeah. So they put together this game called Kokotani Wilf. It's very much in the early arcade adventure mode. It's not that puzzle solvy, but it's kind of in this vein of like a Jet Set Willy where you're exploring around the world, collecting items, jumping around platforms, all of that kind of stuff. You're playing some kind of magician. You move through various historical eras. It's not remembered as one of the great classics of the history of games today by any stretch of the imagination, but it did well enough for them there in uh, 1984 to really get elite systems established. 
Elite's gotten going, but Elite is getting going at really the very, very worst time. Because in this time period, 1983-1984, the British computer game market undergoes a massive and very painful transition. So, as I said, you had all of these bedroom coders and you had these very small software companies supporting them. By about 1983, the market's getting lucrative enough that you're starting to see some slightly bigger companies start to develop out of this, just because these games are becoming more and more successful. But at this exact moment, two things happen. First of all, you get the first widespread adoption of dual tape decks. Remember, in Britain, which we've talked about before, even into the 1980s, even into the late 1980s, the market was a cassette-driven market. It was not a disc market. They were not using five and a quarter inch floppies. They were not using three inch floppies. They weren't even being retro and using eight inch floppies. They were using cassette tapes for everything. Very much in the vein of the Trash 80, the Tandy 80, and Mm -hmm. how everything for a while in the United States in the mid to late 70s was all on cassette. Exactly. But the U.S. market moved beyond that very quickly to disk drive. By 1980, the cassette as a primary medium is really a thing of the past. But in the United Kingdom, disk drives are more expensive. I mean, disk drives used to be really expensive. It's hard to believe in this day and age where if for some bizarre reason you need to read an old disk, you can go on Amazon and get a USB floppy disk reader for what? What do those even go for these days? 15 to 20 bucks. We have to yeah. buy them for work. <laughs> 15 to 20 bucks. I mean, a disk drive was a multi-hundred dollar investment. Your disk drive could actually be as expensive as your computer. Like, you could pop down $500 for a computer and then plop down another $500 for a disk drive. I mean, that's not an exaggeration. Some of our older listeners might remember this, or if you're one of our younger listeners, ask your parents. When CD-ROM became in vogue back in the late 80s, early 90s, they were expensive. You're looking at spending close to $100 to $200 for a CD-ROM drive for your computer. And that wasn't very fast. You're talking 1x speed, maybe 4x speed, and that was considered turbo. And it (laughs) would be in this, like, jeweled case, almost like you would keep a CD in that you would insert. You didn't have a tray that came out or anything. You had to put (laughs) it in a tray, its own little separate jewel case tray thing. and Caddy. They they called them caddies. What? (laughs) They called them caddies. The caddy. See, this is a man who knows what all this stuff is. But you throw the caddy in there, and then it reads your CD-ROM drive, and this thing was expensive. Right, and floppy disks back in their day were even more expensive because that read-write equipment was very precise and very finicky and back in the day was very expensive to produce. So in Britain, where the disposable income was a little less, the standard of living was slightly lower a disk drive was just too much of a luxury i mean people these people were lucky they were getting computers and now you want us to spend the same amount or more on a disk drive sawed off pretty much (laughs) so (laughs) so it was a cassette driven market now the cassettes they were using i mean obviously they were putting game code on them they were recording ones and zeros uh kind of i guess but 
it really wasn't much different than the cassette tapes that you're playing, compact cassettes that you were playing music on. Which means that, you know, if you're older and you've ever copied music from one cassette to the other, that's a pretty easy process, right? Yeah, sort of. Well, it was just as easy to copy game software. Obviously, they would try to do various copy protection things, but a lot of this stuff could just be copied just like any other cassette tape. And in the very early days of the market, that wasn't a problem. But then in the early 80s and kind of the early to mid 80s, the 82, 83, 84 period, when component stereo systems became a big thing and dual cassette decks became a big thing, well, now just about everybody had access to a dual cassette deck that would allow you to transfer information from one cassette to the other. Before that, it was very hard to copy compact cassette tapes. You had to like really jury rig stuff together. But a dual cassette deck was purpose-built to allow you to do that. That was part of their functionality. It was pretty much the equivalent of having some sort of duplicator that you would have at a factory that would mass-produce those cassette tapes available for you to just duplicate on your own and hand out to all your friends. Exactly. So piracy began to run rampant in the British computer game industry. I mean, piracy has always been a thing in the computer software industry, and there's endless debate on how harmful it really is or how many people were really doing it or this and that. That's an endless debate. But the fact of the matter is, is that piracy was too easy for a period of time here with these dual cassette decks. And so the piracy really was a crippling problem. Then at the same time, you had a new budget market coming in. Basically, with the whole piracy situation and the whole easy duplication situation, one of the big responses to that by the industry was, well, okay, if you're going to pirate this stuff, then what we have to do is have to make the product cheap enough that you impulse buy it rather than copying it. It's like it's not even worth the effort of copying it because we've made it so cheap. So you get a new concept in British software of budget software. The typical computer game was selling for five to six pounds in this time period. Now, remember, this is early 1980s money, A, and B, the pound is actually stronger than the U.S. dollar. So six pounds is probably more like 10 or 12 bucks back in those days if, if you're an American in terms of dollars, and then you have to apply inflation to that. And then you also have to remember what I said before about the amount of disposable income being less in Britain. So if I rattle off a number like five or six pounds, that may not sound like a lot of money today. But that was actually a serious investment back then. That was akin to buying a 40 or $50 game in today's world. Doing a quick look up here, the six pounds in 1980 in 2019 would be 25.52 pounds now. So six pounds in 1980 is 25.52 pounds. And then you take that 25.52 pounds and convert it over to the U.S. dollar that would be about $32 for the game, about mid-range yep. for the United States. And I think the pound was also stronger vis-a-vis -vis the dollar. I could be wrong back in 1980, so I wouldn't be surprised if it got up to even around $30. But that gives you an idea. It does. It really does. And then for comparison's sake, two pounds in 1980 comes out to be about eight pounds 50. You convert that over, 
would be about $10. So you're going from a roughly about a $30 to $35 product down to about a $10 or less product. So that was a big investment, and that's why people were pirating. But then you had some companies come along that started releasing games for one ninety nine, pound ninety nine, really dirt cheap. These companies were able to do that. This isn't uh, an episode about budget software. We'll cover some of this stuff at some point, I'm sure, in, in the show, so I won't go into detail. But basically, a new breed of businessmen came along that was able to get true mass market distribution on a level that the first round of companies were not able to get. And then they were able to pay a rotating series of subcontractors and developers to just generate massive amounts of content. And so by doing that, they were able to keep the quality of the games decent. Now, they are still budget games, so it's not like they're great, brilliant product, but they're also not just the complete cheapie of the cheap either. They're still better than a lot of what was going on on the Atari 2600 in this time period in the United States, which had turned into such a disastrous market. So they kept the quality just high enough to keep it interesting, while keeping the price just low enough that people were willing to impulse buy. This, quite understandably, sent huge shockwaves through the industry. And it caused the failure of several high-profile companies at the time. Now, these high-profile companies were still pretty small potatoes because the whole market was small potatoes. But it pretty much wiped out a lot of the first generation of British computer game companies. And the companies that it didn't wipe out had to make a decision. They either had to follow Mastertronic, kind of the pioneer of this budget model, into the gutter and just release cheapo product. Or they had to figure out a way to entice people to still buy a full-priced product. Pretty much the answer to that problem for every company that chose to go that path was licensing. So I told you that the entire market was pretty much based on what was going on in the arcade at the time. All the games were variations on Defender and Pac-Man and... um, Space Invaders. Yeah, and, and all of these games that were big in the arcade. But none of them were licensed. It was all unlicensed ports. Then as now, a license means something. And for a lot of people, a license means that it's just a cheap and lazy tie-in. And there's some truth to that. I mean, if you look at the truly great games in video game history, which we did in our three-part Top 100 Games episodes not that long ago, very little of it is licensed product. But if you're just looking back in history, especially in this 80s and 90s period, when people were not as savvy and when you couldn't just go on YouTube and check out a Let's Play video to see what a game was like, a license bought you instant brand recognition and an instant idea of what this game is going to be like. So if you're a kid back in the mid-1980s and you have only so much money to spend... And we're in a period of time where nothing's being advertised on television. And there's no internet, so there's no checking out Let's Play videos, as I said, on YouTube. And yeah, the magazines are kind of reviewing games, but it can be hit or miss whether the games are shown up in the mag or whether you can get a copy of the mag in time. Having some semblance of an idea of what a game might be serves as a little bit of insurance. 
if you played Defender in the arcade and you liked Defender in the arcade and then somebody creates Defender in the home, now it could be an absolute rubbish port. It could be terrible, but at least you kind of have an idea when you're in the store. I know what Defender is. I know what that plays like. If I buy this, I know I'm buying a game that I'm going to enjoy, assuming that it was actually a a decent port. Make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Have an idea of what it is I'm buying. I want Defender. I want Asteroids. I want whatever it is. I might even tolerate a crappy port if it costs less. Right. But there's a real need to, like, have some insurance because there are all these games in the shops and you only have money for one. And heaven help you if you buy the wrong one. Not so much of a problem today. I think part of the reason that we look back on licenses now is being cheap, lazy tie-ins and let's go get the real games is that it's much, much easier to figure out what the real games are. We have so many outlets to figure out whether a game is good or not, and they just didn't have those outlets back then. So licenses, both in the form of licensing popular entertainment products, whether those be action figures, television shows, movies, etc., and licensing in the sense of licensing hot games that were in the arcade, became the main method that the non-budget companies used to survive. And Elite was one of the absolute founders of this movement towards licensing, because they were one of these companies. They'd released their Kokutani Wolf game in 1984. They're coming on the scene right as the entire full-price games market is falling apart. What are we going to do about this? Basically, Stephen Wilcox saw something that is fairly obvious on its face, but was something that nobody was doing anything with. It's like, okay, well, the Blue Thunder game we did, I mean, that was ridiculously popular. I mean, it wasn't a huge seller, but that was a successful game because people knew what Blue Thunder was. And all of these other games on the market that are ripoffs of coin-op games, the reason that they're doing well on the computer to the extent they're doing well is because they're emulating this gameplay. So clearly, licenses are the way to go. So they decided to go after the other big helicopter action television series of the time, Airwolf. I don't know if you remember that one. I do not. It was kind of hanging around on television. We're a little young for it, but it's one of those things that was out there in reruns or whatever. I never watched it, but it was a popular show in, in the U.S. and abroad. So they found the European agent for MCA, which was the company that actually did the television series, but they're an American company and they had an agent in the UK. So they found the agent and they made a deal with them to license Airwolf. They'd kind of already done a helicopter shooter. They knew what that was like. It's just this time they were going to attach a hot license to it. It actually almost fell apart on them. They score this license, and they're a small company, so they can't go out and get a million licenses. They kind of have to pick and choose very carefully in these days because they're still very small. So they score this license, and then Ocean Software, which was another company that was very early on licensing, we'll devote a whole episode to them someday or two episodes, but not yet. Ocean actually then went in and offered more money and outbid them. And so the UK licensing agent decided to go with the higher bid. Steve Wilcox actually appealed to MCA directly in the United States and said, okay, guys, I know that you've been told that Ocean, like, paid for this license for your, like, Airwolf thing, 
but we actually had like a deal, like a real done, complete deal with your UK agent. And then he just screwed us over because someone else offered more money. And that ain't right, guys. That's just not cool. And MCA, to their credit, presumably looked into the matter and was like, you're right, you did have a deal. And that wasn't cool. They were able to maintain that agreement and get the rights to Airwolf. Airwolf was a huge hit in Britain. It's kind of funny because it was uh, considered by most of the magazines, it was considered a kind of rubbish port. I mean, it wasn't considered that great a game. So, you know, even back then, this idea that if you do a license, that license ends up being a lazy piece of whatever is kind of being established. But it had this hot license. Airwolf was very popular, so it sold well. It sold over 100,000 copies. And believe me, in the British market, in the early to mid-1980s, you were absolutely over the moon if you sold 100,000 copies across all platforms. That was a massive hit. That was like selling a million, maybe even like selling two million in the United States. That's cash money right there. They got it for all of 3,000 pounds. That's all they had to pay for the license. Because this was right at the beginning of licensing. You find this happening everywhere. You found this happening in streaming with Netflix, too. When somebody in a new market comes along and is like, hey, I want to license your stuff for this newfangled technology thing, they'll be like, oh, wow, no one's asked us to do that before. That's kind of cool. Yeah, sure, you can do that. It's free money for us. So here, we'll just give it to you for not much. And then later on, it becomes a huge hit. And they're like, we left so much money on the table. Netflix, of course, was the same thing. I mean, everyone was just throwing their stuff at Netflix for streaming rights for nothing when Netflix started streaming, right? Yeah, definitely. (laughs) And now we have all of these services and all of this chaos in streaming. (laughs) And so it was the same in computer games. So for 3,000 pounds, I mean, that was nothing. Even back then, that was nothing to get a license. It was very successful. So they got a huge return on investment and that got them established. After that, they went and licensed a major sports personality. There was a British heavyweight boxer at the time, Frank Bruno, who was very successful. So they went to his management. And again, this is the beginning of these things. People hadn't thought about licensing sports personalities in the UK yet. We talked about in our EA episode how kind of the first major license was Electronic Arts going and getting Julius Irving and Larry Bird, the basketball players. Atari had licensed Pele even before that, but that's a slightly different situation. So the idea of celebrity licensing was just starting in the United States, but hadn't penetrated very much in the United Kingdom yet. It was starting, but this was again at the very beginning of it. So Frank Bruno's management team had no idea what this newfangled computer game stuff was. So again, once they kind of explained to them what this was and what they were going to do, they got a pretty darn cheap license. And they were able to release a game called Frank Bruno's Boxing. It was basically a ripoff of the Punch-Out arcade game. So instead of Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, we have Frank Bruno's Punch-Out. I mean, boxing. Yeah, yes, in a a way. Now, of course, this is before Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, right? Because we're talking 1985 here, and Mike Tyson's Punch-Out was 87. But the arcade game Punch-Out had come out the year before with generic boxers. No big names attached to it. So they kind of took the gameplay of that game and attached it to a well-known celebrity and had this Frank Bruno's boxing game in 1985. So that was kind of their second big hit alongside Airwolf. That was kind of a great one-two punch, pun kind of intended, that really got them established in the market. 
they started with the celebrity licensing thing. And then they very quickly moved on to licensing arcade stuff as well, coin-op stuff, too. We're in a period here where the coin-op market is just starting to come back. Of course, we did a whole episode on kind of picking up the pieces of the great coin-operated game crash that occurred. That was pretty much worldwide. I mean, the console crash, of course, was very much a localized North American phenomenon, but kind of the global coin-op market had entered a bit of a downturn. And the global coin-op market was just coming out of this downturn, and the Japanese were getting directly involved for the first time, and this was very important. In the earlier coin-operated period, it was these big American companies that had the rights to all the games. And so if they were going to do home ports, you know, Atari was getting was buying up the rights to all the home ports of everything. Coleco was buying up everything. Mattel was buying up everything. And these companies had their own robust product development apparatus, so there wasn't any room for anyone else to do official arcade licenses because these big conglomerates were buying up all those rights. But now in this new period, in this new recovered period, the Japanese are coming in globally for the first time. They're taking control of their own destiny outside of Japan. They're not licensing to Atari or Midway or Sega, which, remember, in the early 80s was an American company, not a Japanese company. They're doing their own thing. So Capcom was established just a couple of years before this. And Capcom, because they're kind of the new kid on the block, I think, that's just me speculating, but moved very aggressively into Europe in terms of dealing with coin-operated distributors in the country and getting their arcade games permeated in Europe. So Kenzo Tsujimoto, the founder and CEO of Capcom, does a lot of business in Europe, does a lot of business in England, in the UK specifically, and is over in the UK a lot. The Wilcoxes, as well as some of the other big names, including Ocean, which is kind of Elite's rival throughout this entire period, see an opportunity here because Capcom has a new hit game called Commando, which was one of the first really, really successful run-and-gun style military shooters. It wasn't the first game of that type, but it was the one that was really a breakthrough success that made that style of gameplay very, very popular in the mid to late 1980s, early 1990s. It's kind of clear that the Commando license is going to be available in the United Kingdom, that Tsujimoto is going to come over and he's going to grant those rights to all of those 8-bit British computer platforms to somebody. So, of course, the Wilcoxes get in on this. And they have a really good sense of what a good license can do. As I told you, this is a period of time when licenses were really undervalued still. So it would be very tempting for a computer software publisher to lowball because they figure the company they're dealing with is not going to understand the market. Because even though Capcom is a fellow video game company, unlike MCA that's doing Airwolf or the management team of Frank Bruno, the boxer, they don't deal in British computers and British computer games. They don't know what that market looks like. So they can't accurately value that market either. And the way Steve Wilcox puts it, I think, is, is fair to this. I think there was probably a tendency by some of these companies to undervalue the license somewhat deliberately and try to pull one over on Capcom. Steve Wilcox knew that his company was very small compared to Ocean. He knew that in a straight-up street brawl or in a bidding war, 
they would probably not be able to get the license because they just don't have as many resources. However, he also had a very good idea now of how well a hit license could sell because he had done the Bruno deal, he had done the Airwolf deal, and he knew how well those games were selling. So he decided that instead of trying to get the deal for as little money as he could, he did some quick math in his head in the hotel while they were waiting to meet the agent on how much they could really afford to give up. So at first they were planning to offer 25,000 pounds for the license, which, you know, they just got the Airwolf license for 3,000 pounds. So that was a pretty big deal. But when they realized all these other companies that were interested, particularly Ocean, they were like, no, 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 no. This may be a reasonable deal, but we've got to knock their socks off with the first offer because everyone else is probably going to come in low and then maybe they have to pay a little more negotiation, but they're probably going to really lowball on it. So what we have to do is we have to figure out what we can bear, what we can truly bear, and just offer that up front and blow Capcom away with an offer that's so big that they just give it to us and become insulted by all the offers from all of these other companies that are going to be way lower. So they decided that a royalty rate of 65 pence per unit was probably about as high as they could go, and they figured that they would clear 100,000 units easily because Airwolf cleared 100,000 units. So 65 pence times 100,000 units is 65,000 pounds. So they just right up front told him, we will offer you 65,000 pounds. And they walked away with the deal. Wow. Takes a lot of guts to do something like that. It does. It really does. If it had been a bidding war, they'd have probably lost. But by just giving that knockout punch right up front, they won it. And you know what? It still ended up being cheap because it was the major hit of Christmas and it sold over 200,000 units. That's probably like selling three to four million in the United States. I mean, that's a huge hit. All for Commando. Commando was pretty huge. I mean, when you look back at Commando compared to some of the games that followed, like your Guerrilla Wars and your Ikari Warriors and your Heavy Barrels and all of that, your Jackals, it looks like a pretty simple game. But, you know, it was kind of the beginning of this type of thing. So this kind of run-and-gun gameplay was something that was very new and very exciting. So, yeah, 200,000 units. Ocean had to settle for creating a clone, and then they got the Rambo license for their clone. So they released a Rambo game that was basically Commando, except with Rambo. But the Commando name was bigger than the Rambo name in this case, and they buried Ocean's game with their Commando game. So this did two things. First of all, it got them a great relationship with Capcom. You know, the Japanese way of doing business. It's like once you establish a personal relationship and a personal rapport and a mutual respect, then it's very hard to drive a wedge between that relationship. It's certainly not impossible, but when you have that established relationship, you have that established relationship. So all the subsequent Capcom hits, they got to convert to the 8-bit platforms and roll in that money. But the other thing that it did for them is they were like, we got to get some more of these Japanese games. So they were pretty sure it was going to be a hit. Again, they took another risk. They were pretty sure it was going to be a hit. They didn't know it was going to be a hit. They wouldn't know, I should say, that it was going to be a hit until it actually released at Christmas. Rather than wait to see if that game would be a hit, Steve Wilcox immediately, they consummated the Commando deal in August 85, Wilcox immediately flies to the Tokyo Game Show, which is the main coin-op show in Japan, in September. 
Now, this is a period, again, where nobody was sure yet that these arcade games would be massive hits on 8-bit computer platforms. Like Companies like Ocean thought that this was probably a good idea, which is why there were multiple bidders for the Capcom license. But nobody knew that this was a good idea yet. So Wilcox was basically the only Westerner at this Tokyo game show. I should say the only Western company. I mean, Westerners from the coin-op industry were there, but in terms of like the computer industry, he was like the only one that went out there. He had basically the entire show floor to himself to go and try to secure a bunch of other rights. He came away with several major hits. He came away with a license from Sega for Space Harrier. He came away with a license from Tecmo for Bomb Jack, which was a big hit. He came away with a license for Paperboy. Paperboy is an Atari product, and Atari is an American company. But remember, during this time period, Atari Games is in the middle of being uh, majority owned by Namco. Even though Atari is an American company with all American management, there's still a pretty decent Atari presence at the Tokyo Game Show because of the Namco connection. He comes away with the licenses for Space Harrier, Bomb Jack, Paperboy, and he gets them. I don't know what he paid for him. He hasn't talked about that. But I mean, he gets them very reasonably because no one else is there. There's no bidding wars. There's no nothing. It's just a wide open field just for him. So Paperboy in 1986, he gets the rights in 1985, but they released the game in 86, becomes an even more massive hit. It sells 400,000 copies. Almost like they're doubling whatever they're selling. (laughs) Exactly. So it becomes an even bigger hit. You know, they have a very good system in place. They have a couple of designers on staff, Elite does. And the designers storyboard the product, put together docs, design docs, showing the flow of the product, showing the idea of the product. And then they have this staple of contract programmers that they use to actually do the programming. So there's very little overhead for them. They just keep a couple of people on staff to help define the parameters of the game, subcontract out all the programming, and that allows them to get a lot of these conversions done very quickly and put a lot of them on the market in a single year and then reap the rewards when these very big licenses sell hundreds of thousands of units. It's a brilliant model. They're one of the pioneers of that model. They're certainly not the only ones doing this, but because they were one of the first ones doing it, they really reaped a lot of the rewards of doing it. And this period of time in the mid-80s, 85, 86, 87, 88, is really a golden era for elite systems. Unfortunately for the company, it was never, ever going to last. Because, of course, these companies eventually figure out, whether they're Japanese coin-op companies or their major media companies, motion picture studios, television studios, etc. These companies very quickly figure out that this computer game thing is very lucrative. So they're not just going to accept lowball offers anymore. And the British computer game establishment has realized how lucrative this licensing thing is. So they're not going to miss the boat on this anymore. He was the only guy at the Tokyo Game Show in 1985. There was never a situation again where he was the only guy at a major Japanese coin-op show. The companies are going to start asking for more money because they know the value of their product. More software houses are going to pursue this product. Better financed, bigger software companies are going to pursue this product because Elite Systems is basically just this family affair. These other companies like Ocean, which I keep mentioning, or like U.S. Gold, which is another major company in this time period, can throw so much more money at these companies 
And it becomes harder and harder for elite systems to compete in that market because they're just too small. In 1987-ish, they come to a painful realization that they're going to have to start building an in-house programming team, not just subcontracting out. They're going to need to keep people in-house and watch the product more closely because they're going to have to start doing their own original product. The original product is kind of safer to do in-house because if you're telling somebody, we got the commando license, go program commando you can be reasonably certain that that person can figure out what Commando is. They can go down to their local arcade and play it. But when you're doing stuff that's original, you need to have more tight coordination between all aspects of that development process. So they start building up an in-house team, and they start doing their own original product. And it quite frankly doesn't go that well for them. There's nothing particularly interesting or exciting about the games that they did in the late 1980s. They weren't terrible games. They weren't great games. They didn't have a license to make them stand out. And so kind of between 87 and 89, things were getting kind of gloomy. But then once again, Wilcox gets the company ahead of the curve and on the real edge of the next wave. At this point, he decides that the company should develop for the Nintendo Entertainment System. Really? So he starts going after the NES. Exactly. So. By 1989-1990, the NES is very well established in the United States. It has been a very big deal in the United States for several years. It did not penetrate Britain in the 1980s. There were a couple of reasons for this. You had the same old problem that it was an import and it was a luxury good, the same kind of problem the consoles had in the early 1980s. You also had the fact that Nintendo didn't care very much about Europe, and so the distribution was very fragmented. Uh, We probably talked about this in our Sega versus Nintendo episode, but part of the reason Sega was able to gain such a great foothold in Europe is that they made a concerted effort to tackle the entirety of the European markets in a systematized manner very early on, while Nintendo gave this company distribution in this country, this company distribution in that company. It was a very fragmented approach and not a very effective approach. So there really was no console market in Britain in the 1980s, even though both the NES and the Sega Master System appeared there in the late 1980s. Now, we say the NES appeared in Europe and in England. Now, is this a Famicom version that was brought over in that design, or is this the American NES gray box design? So that's a good question. It was based on the American model. It, It didn't look like a Famicom. There were slight variations across countries, but it was all the the gray box. It was very much in that mold. There wasn't a Nintendo Europe at the time. There would eventually become one. So I think the Americans kind of had some say in what was going on in Europe before there was a well-established Nintendo Europe. Though I'm not 100% sure that's true. But it definitely was the American-style version. So there really was no market for that stuff in the late 1980s. But by 1990... The technology's matured, which means that it's cheaper. The British computer market is really falling apart. There's really no real successors to the 8-bit market or the Amiga market that kind of sort of appeared in the 16-bit space, but these markets are kind of falling apart. There's no natural British successors to the 8-bit platforms like the Specky or the Amstrad or the 16-bit platforms like the Amiga. 
So in this period, the United Kingdom and Europe in general really start to embrace consoles. Once again, Elite Systems is right on the edge of this. They decide to start creating product for the NES right before consoles become more of a thing in the United Kingdom. And they're able to actually secure the rights to Dragon's Lair, and they create an NES version of Dragon's Lair. Now, the NES version of Dragon's Lair is nothing like the arcade game. No. Yeah. Nor could it ever be, because Laserdisc, full animation, etc., etc., there was never going to be... (laughs) It was just never going to be like that. But at least you die with impunity. Something like that. Oh, you do. That game's hard and atrocious. Yes. But it has Dirk the Daring and, you know, vaguely similar setting and all of that. So they're able to get the rights to Dragon's Lair and they make a version of it for the NES, take it to CES in the United States, and become one of the very first European third-party publishers on the NES. So that gets them into the console market, and that allows the company to keep going. It's not always the easiest market to be involved in because there's more upfront cost. You're paying for cartridges, but they had built up enough of a capital base through their uh, successful licenses in the 8-bit market that they were able to kind of get this going. And then they really had a big hit in 1994, working in conjunction with a company called Rage Software. They created a soccer game called Striker. Obviously, soccer is one of those areas where the U.S. companies and the Japanese companies hadn't necessarily established a definitive game within the sport because it's something that's much more popular in Europe than in either of those two places. Electronic Arts has created the first FIFA by this point, but FIFA is not this big all-conquering juggernaut yet. So there's kind of an opening for soccer games, and several of the British companies turn to soccer as a way of finding success on console platforms. So they do Striker in 1994, which sells 200,000 copies, which again sounds really low, but is pretty good for console product in Europe at that time, where consoles are still not fully dominating the market in the same way that they are the U.S. and Japan. That's an SNES game, a Super Nintendo game uh, that came out in 1994. At this point, things take a bit of a turn for Elite. As I said, it's hard being in the console market if you're a smaller company because you have those upfront costs of purchasing the cartridges. And Nintendo was very fragmented. Even after they established Nintendo Europe, which they did establish in the early 90s, Europe was uh, a very fragmented place for Nintendo. They never did a good job of consolidating how they did distribution. So a company like Elite would have to buy their product from Nintendo, because remember, you bought your cartridges from Nintendo. And then they would have to sell that product on to the Nintendo distributors in all of these different countries. And it's very fragmented. So that was a challenging situation, and they weren't the only ones facing that challenging situation. Ocean and other companies that also dealt in the NES uh, and SNES markets were also facing the situation. And then in the mid-90s, a savior appeared to sweep in. And that savior was called Sony. Sony? Now, we're not talking about the PlayStation, though this is linked. 
This is the period of time when Sony is in the process of designing the PlayStation. And Sony, because it's a company that historically had been a very successful company in Europe, was looking to be very active in the European markets from the very beginning of the PlayStation. I think that's it's fair to say that that's one of the reasons that the PlayStation was able to experience the global success that it did, is that they pushed all parts of the world, all parts of the developed world, I should say, equally at the launch of the PlayStation, and Europe was definitely one of those areas. So during this period, they're building up a big distribution network for games. They already have great distribution in Europe because they're doing hardware and they're doing music and they're doing all of this other stuff. So Sony already has great distribution in Europe and they are creating a great distribution network for video games in Europe as well in anticipation of the PlayStation. But they plan to harness that network, not just for the PlayStation, but also just generally kind of harness it. So Sony comes in and says, we've got this great distribution network. You should all sign on and we will take care of distributing your product throughout the continent. You don't have to worry about doing all of these individual little piddly deals anymore. Just deal with us and we'll get your product everywhere rather than dealing with all of these dumb little distributors. We have 25 regional offices throughout Europe. We'll take care of everything. Just sell to us and we'll get it out to the local market. Unfortunately, we're talking about 1994 here when this is all happening. And 1994 was actually a terrible year for the video game industry. I think we've kind of alluded to this in an episode or two in the past, but the 93-94 period was kind of the crash that almost was. There was not a market crash, but boy did it get scary because the Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis, or Mega Drive as it would be called in Europe and Japan, markets oversaturated all of a sudden. Very similar to how the Atari software market oversaturated in the early 80s. And a lot of companies were left holding the bag, and there was a major market oversaturation. And Sony had to come back to all these companies and be like, um, you know how we were going to take all your product and sell it on through? Well, we're still going to do that, but <laughs> funny story, guys. Turns out the whole market's oversaturated, and we're going to have to really cut the prices to get people to take our product, by which I mean your product, by which I mean we're slashing your prices, by which I mean you're not getting as much money from us. Now, I mean, is that entirely Sony's fault? No, because the entire market was experiencing this. Other, other companies like Acclaim and Capcom and Data East that were very well established in the console markets took a real bath on overproduced product as well. It's not like Sony was just screwing them when there was a great market. There was a legitimately bad market. But Sony, clearly, uh, Sony was kind of new to this side of the business. And Sony clearly had misread the market, even though they were not alone in that. And Sony had taken too much product from all of its partners. This caused a real crisis that basically destroyed what remained of the British computer game publishing industry. The British producers were already kind of beginning to struggle a little bit because once the market became more global, the Japanese and American companies were just bigger because they had access to more funding. It was very hard to get funding in the United Kingdom. 
compared to the United States, where you could just go get venture capital. Or Japan, which was a very paternalistic society, so all the companies looked after each other and invested in each other and made sure everybody stayed big and strong, even while they were competing with each other. You didn't have that same ability to capitalize in Europe. So these were small publishers. So they were already beginning to struggle as the American and Japanese companies came in and started to do their business in Britain. Now, with their prices being slashed and them being oversupplied, that just completely destroys them. They all start losing money. Ocean loses a ton of money, which puts it on the path to being purchased by Infogrom, which, of course, we talked about in our Infogrom episode. U.S. Gold, which was another big one, ends up having to sell out. And Elite lost two million pounds on this bad Sony deal. What ended up being a bad Sony deal? It didn't sink Elite. Elite was able to pull out of this, but it was the end of Elite as a publisher. At that point, it became a contract developer for other companies. And that's kind of how they rode out the rest of the 90s. And they had some successes in there. They did a game called Test Drive Off-Road for Accolade. Test Drive was one of Accolade's big series, American company. So they created a game, an off-road driving game that was integrated into the existing Test Drive series. It sold a million copies. As a PC game, it sold a million copies. Not as an NES game. Yeah, because they also decided to get the heck off of consoles in this period. It did receive a PlayStation port, but it was PC first. So those million units probably include PlayStation sales as well. It was kind of PC first. They did a few other racing games after that, and those racing games were fairly successful, but now they were running up against another problem in the late 90s, which is that development teams are just getting huge because you have the polygonal graphics, you have better textures, higher resolutions, you need more art, you need more programming, and so team sizes are getting to be, you know, 20 people, 40 people in this time period. And again, Elite's a small company. That's hard for them. (laughs) They can't just staff up by another 30 people and call it good. And especially after they got hit by that bad Sony deal and they lost a lot of their cash bags, a lot of their war chest, so to speak, from all of their successes in the past. Exactly. They do these PC games, a lot of driving games. They do okay. But it gets really hard for them. So then they pivot again, and they pivot very smartly in the early 2000s into mobile gaming. And they really hit the retro market hard with mobile gaming. They leveraged some of those licenses they had done in the past, like Paperboy and Bombjack. Obviously, they don't own those properties. They had to reacquire those rights, but they'd worked with these companies and worked with those products before, so they were able to do that. They leveraged these, bring them to mobile. And in the early 2000s, they have some half-decent success, even in the pre-smartphone era we're talking here. They have some pretty decent success with mobile games. Now, you know, they're not going to become rich on these mobile games. They're not one of these companies that becomes a massive iPhone developer and becomes Rovio with Angry Birds or (laughs) or the Candy Crush people at King and make, you know, a billion dollars. But They're able to keep the company going. They can stay small, they can stay lean, and they can leverage that same expertise that they used to be successful with these games the first time around in the 80s. 
to be successful with them again in the 2000s on mobile. Really, by the end of the 90s, the period of real relevance of elite systems kind of ends. But the company's still around. The company's still kind of chugging along by doing those kind of mobile projects and doing retro projects. And that brings us very briefly to the controversy, or controversy, as they would pronounce it across the pond, more or less, that they got into a couple of years ago. In 2014, they decided to harness their credibility as a purveyor of retro content and as a company that had been around since the 80s and and the heyday of the Spectrum market in the United Kingdom, they decided to do a Kickstarter campaign to crowdfund a special Bluetooth keyboard that recreated the look and the feel of the ZX Spectrum keyboard, which was not a great keyboard because part of what uh, allowed that product to be so cheap is that it didn't have a touch type keyboard. It had this kind of rubbery chiclet keyboard because believe it or not, just as we were talking about with disk drives, keyboards are one of those things that were actually really, really expensive back in the day to do them properly with full touch typing because they had to be mechanical, (laughs) quite simply. Nowadays, kind of the same technology that went into those chiclet keyboards is what most keyboards use today, but the technology's better, and so you can recreate a touch-type experience using those strips. Back then, you couldn't. You either had a real typing experience with a mechanical keyboard, or you had these really bad chiclet keyboards that were horrible to use. And the British computers tended to have the horrible-to-use keyboards because, again, everything was at a premium. Cost was important. Keeping cost down was important. So this keyboard that they created, it kind of recreated the rubbery feel of the keys of the ZX Spectrum, and it was Bluetooth, and it would allow you to connect it to uh, iOS devices. You see, as part of their retro mobile thing that they were doing, they were going to be releasing, had already released some, and were going to be releasing more classic Spectrum games under their banner, even games that they hadn't originally created, that they licensed. And so this Bluetooth keyboard was going to be compatible with all of these app releases they did. So you could connect that to your iOS device and then play these old classic games. The classic games weren't on the keyboard, but the keyboard made it possible to kind of more easily play these games on a modern touchscreen device like an iPad or an iPhone, with plans then to extend it to others as well. But they started out on iOS. So they did a Kickstarter for that in 2014, and the Kickstarter did well. They met their funding goals. Retro people are excited, which is great. But? But turns out that that big collection of games that were being made to work in tandem with that keyboard, turns out that developers were not getting paid royalties and maybe some of the companies weren't even getting paid licensing fees. Uh Uh-oh. Apparently, this had been a problem for a little bit. I don't know the full details on this. I don't think anyone really knows the full details. I mean, you can read articles on it online, but I wouldn't say that the inside story is necessarily fully understood at this point. 
Some of these problems had started before the Kickstarter because they'd already been licensing games before they did the Kickstarter for this keyboard. But when the Kickstarter happened, some of these developers that hadn't been paid got more vocal because they were like, why are you taking money from people for this keyboard when you haven't even paid us? Now, at this time, this is 2014, is Steve still in control of the company? Oh, yeah, and he still is today. This is all Steve Wilcox, yep. It's always been a small family company. The keyboard worked. It's not that the keyboard was bad. It wasn't vaporware. It wasn't like some of these other Kickstarter projects where they promised the moon and then nothing materialized. The, The keyboard happened, and the keyboard worked, but it just created a lot of controversy because it came out that maybe they weren't paying everybody. That was kind of an awkward, more recent event in the company's history. They did also have problems, though, shipping. The same problem a lot of Kickstarters had, even though the the keyboard did materialize. You know, there were late deliveries. Not everyone that pledged was getting them. It was one of these cautionary Kickstarter tales that we've seen so many times before. It's just that this one happened to involve a company of long standing that had been involved with kind of this retro stuff before it was even retro. As far as I know, this isn't a controversy that I've kept up on. As far as I know, that controversy is mostly in the past now. Uh, It was a big controversy at the time. Elite is still out there. I think its profile is even a little lower now than it was when it did that Kickstarter, but the company is still around. I don't think they're doing terribly too much these days. So I know I'm just kind of petering out here at the end (laughs) a little bit, but that really is kind of the story of the company. I mean, if we were to sum that up, it would be that it's a small company. It was a family-run company. Oh, it is. Yeah, still is. It was always kind of this little thing, but it managed to make big impacts above and beyond their actual size as a company. I personally find it really fascinating that you actually have a company that's that small that started out in the early 80s and survives to the present day and is still somewhat viable as far as a company goes. Yeah, I mean, they they have really found their niche with this kind of recreating old retro games, old British retro games, old Spectrum retro games on modern mobile devices. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting. Now, we said that this is sort of an allegory for a lot of the other companies. How does that sort of tie in with the entire history of Elite Systems? How does that an allegory for Well, other- I mean, yeah, I'm, uh, it's it's not so much that it's an allegory as it is really kind of a case study because they started out with this kind of bedroom coder mentality. Mm-hmm. And then when the whole bedroom coder thing collapsed, they went to the we're going to release a bunch of licensed games mentality, which was really the main mentality of the non-budget companies in the late 1980s and early 1990s in Britain. And then when that started drying up, they were like, well, now we're going to go to console, which is what a lot of the big companies did at that time in Britain and in Europe as they then transitioned to console when that 8-bit British computer market and that 16-bit Amiga market finally collapsed. Then they kind of got caught up in the collapse, the wider collapse of the British computer game publishing industry that we alluded to. The Sony deal was a part of that. 
then they found a new life on mobile. So it very much tracks kind of what the trends were at kind of each phase of the British market up through the mid-1990s, from bedroom coders to licensors to console publishers to, oh my God, everything's on fire. They were kind of always at the cutting edge of each one of those transitions, and so that's why they're kind of a good company to examine that entire scope of what was going on in Britain at the time. Yeah, it makes sense there. It's almost like Steve went and sort of scouted out these different venues and was really hitting the ball on the head there most of the time and leading the rest of the industry where they needed to transition to. Absolutely. I mean, he wasn't all alone out there, but he was always right there on the front line. He was always one of the the early ones to make these jumps. And that's the reason that despite being such a small family company, it's it's able to still exist today because he kept on those trends. Well, since that covered up Elite Systems, what will we do with our December 15th episode, the holiday season? <laughs> the holiday season. Well, I think we should talk about one of the most important holiday games in the history of holiday games, Jeff. That sounds like it could be a really bad game. <laughs> it could be, because of course Christmas 1982 was going to be when Atari boldly and bravely and greatly moved on to bigger, better, and more wonderful things because they had one of the most incredible licenses in the entire world of licenses. The never-ending story game? No, Jeff. Aw. E.T. We're going to cover E.T., but didn't we sort of cover that with the crash? Well, yes, we covered why E.T. wasn't totally to blame for the crash, and we probably even covered a little bit of the creation of E.T. At this point, when you've done over 100 episodes, it's impossible to avoid overlapping at least a little bit. But we are going to take a more in-depth look at all facets of the E.T. situation. Why the license happened, how the game was created, how the game was marketed, why everything's not E.T.'s fault, why everything is still all E.T.'s fault, despite the fact that everything was not E.T.'s fault, etc., etc. I think there's enough there to do a deep dive. Some of it will be uh, repetitive to what we've already talked about, but not all of it. It's definitely a subject that we can stretch out to an entire episode and seems very appropriate for the upcoming holiday season. So a holistic approach to E.T. next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The People and Companies That Shape the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, is now available for purchase through CRC Press and other online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 